Would you now turn to Proverbs chapter 6, where we are now for the first time introduced to the friend, as he is noted in chapter 6, verse 1, and this is simply a jumping off point for this study. My son, if you become surety for your friend, if you have shaken hands and pledged for a stranger, you are snared by the words of your mouth or taken by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, and deliver yourself, for you have come to the hand of your friend. Go and humble yourself and plead with your friend. I was looking up in Webster's Dictionary the definition of a friend. There are several. Number one, one attached to another by affection or esteem. Number two, one that is not hostile. One that is of the same nation, party, or group. Third definition, one that favors or promotes something as a charity. And number four is my favorite, a favored companion. Whenever you tell somebody, you are my friend, that's quite a title. And it's quite a responsibility. It's a wonderful thing to be called a friend, but it's not to be taken lightly. And there are different levels of friendship. There are casual friendships. There are more intense friendships. You can run the gamut from a fleeting social contact to a complex relationship with great depth. Different types of friendships. In the book of Proverbs, there are three Hebrew words for the term friend. And all of them are significant. And it goes from the neighbor or just simply an associate to somebody who is a bosom companion. For instance, the word rea means a neighbor, an associate, or simply the other guy. And there is a responsibility to that neighbor. A stronger word that is used is ahav, one who loves or one to whom you show your affection. The strongest word is the word aluf, which means a close friend or, as we said, a bosom companion. All three of these definitions are in the book of Proverbs, and Proverbs is the best manual I know of for dealing with people in relationships and handling people problems. And yes, whenever you have people, you have problems because people are imperfect. People have failures. There was a poster I came across, and it had quite a graphic on it, and at the bottom it had this little inscription, Involvement with people is always a very delicate thing. It requires real maturity to become involved and not get all messed up. Now, there's a lot of people who would say, why bother at all with close friendships? That's what happens when you get close to people. You get messed up. And so that I don't get burned, I will not be vulnerable, I will not get messed up, Isn't it better just to be alone and aloof? Well, it's easier, but it's not better. God's comment when he looked upon man after he made him is, it is not good that man should be alone. Or literally in Hebrew, not good, not good is man's aloneness. And so God created relationships to take care of the problem of isolation. By the way, we never grow much emotionally or spiritually alone. Think about it. When you are by yourself, you're wonderful to get along with. You are never more spiritual, more awesome, more unselfish. You're just a great person. It takes another party involved with you 
to show the flaws that you have, to cause you and I to grow from that place. Now, loneliness is a growing problem. It's a byproduct of our society, and large crowds don't make people who are not lonely necessarily. In fact, I found that the biggest cities have the loneliest people. A study by the American Council of Life Insurance, interesting study, uh, said the most lonely group in America, I was surprised when I read this, is college students. Next, divorced people, followed by welfare recipients, then single mothers, then rural students, and finally housewives and the elderly. I even came across an ad in a Kansas newspaper that read this, I will listen to you talk for 30 minutes without comment for $5. It sounds like a joke, right? Somebody just wrote that for fun. He was serious. In fact, he got up to 20 calls a day. People willing to have companionship for a half an hour and pay 5 bucks for it. I had a friend who was in a little bit of an accident some years back. His name was Jerry in California, and he went into the mental ward of the hospital to get checked out. And it can be a lonely place in, in those uh, institutions. As he was getting on the elevator, as the elevator was closing and he was about to be discharged, a guy ran on the elevator as the door closed. He had a bandage around his head. And he got two inches from my friend Jerry and said, Can I come home with you? I won't eat much. And, of course, they had to open the elevator and get the guy back out. He was trying to escape, but he wanted companionship. This morning, we're going to look at friendship. And, again, this is a topical study. I am least comfortable whenever I teach topically. I'd rather go through a section that is in front of us. But rather what I'm going to do is sort of compile all of the scriptures in Proverbs that relate to friendship our responsibilities in friendship, the value of friendship. And you can slice this study into two major divisions, the value of friendship and then the vulnerability of friendship. And Proverbs speaks to both of those issues, the value and the vulnerability of friendship. If I'm not mistaken, many of you this morning crave close friendship, and yet many of you feel like you are at a loss And you just wish there would be somebody who would be a close friend. I would like you to think a little differently this morning. Rather than how can I get one, how about how can I be one? And that's where we begin today, the value of friendship. And the value of friendship is always seen in the marks of a true friend. And the book of Proverbs tells us the marks of a true friend. I'm going to give you six marks this morning of true friendship. The first mark is that he is friendly. Now, you might say, Skip, you have a keen eye for the obvious here. But it's true. The first mark of true friendship is you're a friendly person. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24. You can write these down. If you try to turn again to all these, you're going to have a worn-out finger. Maybe you've gotten used to it the last few weeks. I don't know. Proverbs 18, 24, if you can turn there quickly. A man who has friends must himself be friendly. Now, there's examples of this in the Scripture. Ruth and Naomi is a great illustration of this. Ruth, a Moabitess, was the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Naomi was ready to go back from Moab to Bethlehem. And she says to her daughters-in-law, look, you stay here. You're Moabite women. This is your country. These are your people. You've got friends here. I'm going to go back alone to my own people. And Ruth 
took the initiative and she said, Hey, listen, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She attached herself to Naomi and began a lifelong friendship that was very different than what it was before. Another example is that of Jonathan and David. As soon as they met, it says, their hearts were knit together and they had a love for one another. And Jonathan took the initiative of being friendly, gave him his sword, gave him the robe off of his back. In other words, I'm treating you like myself. He took the initiative in friendship. Now, you can choose to be a friend. You can't choose to have one necessarily. You can't walk up to someone and say, say, you shall be my friend. In fact, you are now my best friend. You can't do that. It has to happen. But you can decide to be a friend. And in relationships, you can operate from one of two platforms. From the platform of need or from the platform of supply. If you operate from the platform of need, then you make demands on people. If you operate from the platform of supply, then you serve the needs of the other person. Jonathan did that with David. He took the initiative to offer something that David could not have had otherwise. And it was a friendship that lasted many, many years after that. So rather than saying, nobody cares about me, nobody will be my friend, take the initiative. And when you do that, people will reciprocate and respond to that initiative. You say, oh, but you don't know me. I'm shy. Well, probably three-quarters of the people sitting around you right now would say the same thing. Take the initiative. Step out. There is a story in the Winnie the Pooh cartoon. And by the way, Winnie the Pooh has some great theological insights. One day, Winnie the Pooh was out for a stroll in an afternoon and His dilemma is who he would go visit. So he's walking across the stream and he pauses for a little break on a nice warm rock in the middle of the stream. And he starts thinking, now whom shall I visit? He says, I know, I'll visit Tigger. No, I won't visit Tigger. I'll go visit Owl. No, I won't visit Owl. He uses big words. He uses words too hard to understand. And he says, I know, I'll visit Rabbit. I like Rabbit. Rabbit shares encouraging words with me. He says things like, How's about lunch, Pooh? Or, Help yourself, Pooh. Yes, I think I'll go visit Rabbit. And that's how the story takes off. You see, love begets love. Friendliness begets friendliness. A man who has friends must himself be friendly. Now, if that is true, the opposite is also true. A person who is unfriendly is a person who does not have friends. He is alone and he is dangerous. In Proverbs 18, verse 1, A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire and rages against all wise judgment. Researchers have found the link between isolation and crime, people who are withdrawn and refuse to make bridges, but they build walls instead with other people. During World War II, our enemies found that the surest way to make a prisoner crack 
was the pressure of solitary confinement. It was the worst torture. Isolate him completely and he will divulge most everything you want to know because we crave friendship and companionship. That's why as Christians we need fellowship with each other lest we fall prey to temptation and compromise our values. Now, I think if there's one place where friendship should be initiated and should work well, it is in the church, the body of Christ. We ought to be experts at it, reaching out in love in the name of Jesus. Well, that's the first mark that shows the value of friendship. He must be friendly. Second of all, he is faithful. He's faithful. He's always there. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. You know, it takes a time of trouble, doesn't it? A time of adversity to sort of discern who your true friends really are. The one who will stick it out with you through thick and thin. And the text we just read mentions the brother that is born for adversity. But another proverb, 18.24, says there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And I bet you've had times where you've had a friend stand closer to you than even members of your own family. Happens many times, especially when somebody converts to Christianity and the family might not understand that a friend is there to help. A friend that sticks closer than a brother. Now, Proverbs also talks about the wrong kind of friendship. That is, friends who are not faithful. They're there for the wrong motivations. They're fair-weather friends. They're there at the opportune time, but then they quickly leave. For instance, it says in Proverbs 14.20, The poor man is hated even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Boy, it's amazing, isn't it, how people just seem to suddenly come up, like when you win the lottery. Hey, friend, listen, I've been praying about you and thinking about you for a long time. Really? I haven't heard from you for 40 years. Suddenly you've cashed in and they're there for a handout. Howard Hendricks, who was the chaplain of the uh, Dallas Cowboys, was at a practice and he was in the locker room. Most of the players had left, but there was one player who was sitting by himself. He was alone. So Hendricks went over, put his arm around him, started having a conversation with him. And the player confided in him. He said, I can't tell my friends from my enemies. And he proceeded to describe how somebody just swindled him out of $75,000. He said, you know what I want? I really would like a friend whose primary concern is not my number or my name, but just me. Just me. That's a fair-weathered friend, somebody who ripped him off. A true friend is faithful. He's described in Proverbs. He's described by Paul the Apostle in the chapter of love, that famous chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, that says, Love never fails. Isn't it great to have somebody who will stick it out through thick and thin? Somebody that, when you're at a time of crisis, you don't really even have to hesitate. You know, it's late at night, or it's early in the morning, or maybe in the middle of the night. You know you can call that person. That person will be there for you to receive your call. There is an English newspaper that offered a cash reward for the best definition of a friend. Many submissions were offered. Thousands of entries. Among them, these were the definitions. One who multiplies joys and divides griefs. We are all familiar with that one. Another one was this. One who understands our silence. Another definition. A volume of sympathy bound in cloth 
And another one, a watch which beats true for all time and never runs down. But the definition that got the cash prize was this one. A friend is the one who comes in when the whole world has gone out. That's a faithful friend. A good example of this in the scripture is found with King David. Here's a guy who had his own son revolt against him. His name was Absalom, David's son, and Absalom turned the hearts of the children of Israel away from the king and onto himself, and he led a rebellion, which caused King David to have to flee Jerusalem with 600 of his men. As he was leaving Jerusalem, he saw on the path Ittai the Gittite, who had recently come into the employ of David. And David looked at him and said, Now why should I drag you out of the city of Jerusalem and make you wander with us? I just hired you yesterday, and it's not fair that I would drag you out and make you follow us all around as exiles. And Ittai said to King David, As surely as the Lord lives, and as surely as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. Isn't it great to have a friend like that? I'm ready to live and die with you, David. Wherever you are, I'll be there right with you. A faithful friend. A third mark of friendship in Proverbs is that he is frank. He's honest. He tells you like it is because he loves you. Proverbs 27, verse 5 and 6. Open rebuke is better than love, carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Every now and then somebody will say, I don't like being around those Christians. You know, they just tell me the truth. They won't just hug me and accept me for who I am. Oh no, they'll hug you and accept you for who you are. But it doesn't do you any good to have someone just pat you on the back and flatter you for no reason at all. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. The kisses of an enemy are deceitful. A true friend is willing to express his love with loving criticism, tactful criticism to edify you. To warn you, David could attest to this. This is what he wrote, his own journal, Psalm 141. Let the righteous strike me, and it shall be a kindness. Let him rebuke me, and it shall be as excellent oil, and let my head not refuse it. That happened to David. David committed adultery. Nathan came to him, the prophet, told him a little parable, kind of won David's heart, got David going in this story about a little lamb that was taken by a rich man and was going to be killed, even though the rich man had many lambs. And David said, the man who did this shall surely die. And Nathan said, you are the man. You have taken the wife, like that little lamb, of Uriah. And you've committed adultery and you've sinned against him and you killed him. And your sin is great. It was a confrontation. It was the confrontation of a prophet and a friend that caused David to repent and come back to God. It's just what David needed. You see, here's one of the most valuable assets of friendship. Friends that tactfully, lovingly will be honest with you will cause you to grow. Just like we said at the very beginning, when I'm alone, I'm never more godly, unselfish, wonderful. But when I'm with another person and those two personalities rub against each other, I see their flaws and I see my flaws. And it causes me to grow. It brings accountability. Oscar Wilde once said, A true friend always stabs you in the front 
That's good, isn't it? There's enough people who stab you in the back, gossip behind your back, but a true friend will do it to your face. Won't do it anonymously or to somebody else. He'll be frank. He'll be honest. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a high priest who failed to do this with his own sons. Can you imagine not loving your children enough to be honest and frank with them when you need to be? Eli's sons were despicable. They erred from the Lord. It says, his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. He never rebuked them, never said anything to them. Just let them run wild. It's not love. There was once a successful evangelist in the British Isles who sort of got tired of spiritual things. For many months, quit reading his Bible. In fact, went into a life of sin. After many months, he came back to his heavenly father like the prodigal son came back to his earthly father. And after a long period of time, he felt God impressing him back into the ministry. But he felt, you know, really tentative about it. He thought, I'm not worthy to go back. I've sinned. I can't do this. But he felt like God was telling him to go do it. His fear is that others would find out, after all, his sin in part of the British Isles was publicized in the newspaper, so he thought, you know, this could get out and really be bad. Well, one night he was going to preach again in Aberdeen. Before he got up into the pulpit, as he was sitting on the platform, he was handed a letter. He opened it up, and it said, I know all about what you've done. I know who you are. And he listed some of the things he knew. And he said, if you have the gall to stand up and preach tonight, I will expose you publicly in the meeting. What do you do? What he did is he got up to the pulpit and he read the letter. And he said, first of all, let me make it clear that everything in this letter is absolutely true. And I'm ashamed to read this letter to you. And I'm ashamed of what I have done. And I don't come to you tonight as one who is perfect. I come to you tonight as one who is forgiven. That letter that he read served as a magnet to lead more people to Christ than he could ever imagine because of the approach of honesty that caused that humility, faithful of the wounds of a friend. A fourth mark of a true friend is that he is fortifying. Proverbs 14, verse 9. Ointment and perfume delight the heart, and the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by hearty counsel. That's the cheering effect of fellowship. Also in verse 17, if you happen to turn to Proverbs 14, it says, As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. There's a reassurance and a bracing influence, a strengthening influence that friends bring. A great example of this fortifying effect of friendship is with David and Jonathan. There was a time when David was hunted by Jonathan's dad, King Saul. In fact, it was probably a period of about ten years. And during that time, David wrote some of the greatest psalms of praise, worship, confidence. Yet he wrote some of the psalms of great despair. Like, it's all over. I'm wasted. I'm toast. He didn't really say those words, but it amounts to that. It says when David was out in one of the strongholds out in the wilderness that Jonathan came to him when he was at his lowest and strengthened his confidence in God. Isn't that beautiful? He didn't come to him and say, Hey, Dave, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Look at you. You have no faith. You're David. What about all those psalms you wrote, those sermons you preached? 
You're a failure, David. Rather than saying that, he strengthened his confidence. Iron sharpens iron. That iron personality of Jonathan sharpened the dull edge that David had at the moment and strengthened him to trust again in God. One of the most revealing scriptures, one of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible is the friendship that God had with Moses. It's found in Exodus 33 and it says, God spoke to Moses face to face, just like a man speaks to his friend. Just that open counsel. It was the kind of fellowship where you can just share anything and you, you feel accepted. An old Arab proverb says, Oh, the beauty of being at peace with another, having neither to weigh thoughts nor measure words, but spilling them out just as they are, chaff and grain together, certain that a faithful hand will keep what is worth keeping, and with a breath of kindness blow the rest away. That's fortifying. That's strengthening. That lifts the countenance of another. The fifth mark, according to Proverbs, of a true friend is that he is forbearing. He's forbearing. He's tactful. He restrains his fellowship. Proverbs 25, verse 17. Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house, lest he become weary of you and hate you. Now, a true friend will figure that out. He won't always be there. He won't always be standing face to face. You know, can I come home with you? There's forbearance in that relationship. It's possible to spend too much time together, to smother a relationship. People need space to grow, as well as fellowship. There's an ebb and flow of being alone, as well as being together. Proverbs 27.14 also says, this is humorous, He who blesses his friend with a loud voice, rising up early in the morning, it will be counted as a curse to him. You know, it's one thing to get hearty encouragement. It's another thing to get it at the wrong time. Like calling at three in the morning. Hey, I just wanted to say, you're my friend. (laughs) You do that often enough and you won't have a friend. The Bible speaks also a lot about flattery. And this verse talks about that, you know, rising up and giving this uh, flattery to his friend. A lot of times people will butter you up. They'll flatter you, not because it's genuine and sincere from the heart and they're paying you a compliment. Simply they're trying to control you and manipulate you. And that is not friendship. Friendship is not controlling. You can't say, you're my friend. You can't be his friend. Let the person go free. In fact, the word friend comes from the English word word freon, which means to free. It means to let a person be free with his decisions instead of smothering them or trying to manipulate them or invading them. It's best summed up by the saying that the person wrote, Don't walk in front of me, I may not follow. Don't walk behind me, I may not lead. Just walk beside me and be my friend. Whenever you invade the space of your friend too often... When you do that too often, there can be a poverty of personality. You need variety in friendships. It causes balance. It causes growth. The fifth and final mark, or the sixth and final mark, excuse me, is that he is forgiving. A good friend is forgiving. That almost goes without saying, but it needs to be said. It's in Proverbs. Proverbs 29, verse 11. The discretion of a man 
makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. Now that sounds very similar to what Peter wrote in the New Testament when he talked about friendship, having fervent love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. One of the greatest things about true friends is that they will confront you, but there is latitude. When you mess up, they'll never make you feel like you've done a permanent job. Like you can always have another chance. It's a joy to be around those people. Some of you have heard or read the works of Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer is now in heaven, but he was quite a thinker and a philosopher, a Christian philosopher. He moved from America to Switzerland and set up a little chalet called Labrie. What it was, it was a haven for people who had doubts and questions about the Christian faith, and he would work with them. Well, his wife, Edith Schaefer, told a story about one of the girls whose job it was to cook the food. And one evening she was putting some ingredients together, making a cake. Well, she really messed up royally. And the cake turned into a batch of indiscernible goo. And the girl sat down and she cried. Edith Schaefer came, put her arm around the girl. They figured out what ingredients she used for the goo and then figured out what ingredients needed to be added to the goo and they made a meal. When Francis Schaeffer came home, he said, that's the best pasta I've ever eaten. (laughs) Now only a forgiving friend can take a royal mess up and turn that person into a pasta chef, a noodle chef, when they were trying to make cakes. A good friend is forgiving. Now let's switch gears and talk about the vulnerability of friendship. We've already touched on it lightly, but because friendship is so valuable and precious, it's, it's vulnerable. People have failures. People are imperfect. Therefore, friendships with people must be done delicately so that, as we read at the beginning, you don't get all messed up. You have to guard good friendships. When the above elements, those six elements that are mentioned in Proverbs that we just read, are not in a relationship, it has eroded. It is very, very vulnerable. Now, I mentioned at the beginning the three words for a friend. One was just a companion or just a neighbor, an acquaintance. The other was sort of a friend, a little bit closer, that you show affection for. The third word in Hebrew, aluf, means a bosom companion or a real close friend. What's interesting to me is that whenever that word is used in Proverbs, it is used almost in a negative sense about a relationship that has eroded or been betrayed. And there's two cases of that. I'd like you to turn over to Proverbs chapter 2. We've already covered some of this ground, haven't we? He's talking to his son in Proverbs chapter 2 and telling him about wisdom and telling him not to follow the ways of an immoral woman. But listen his description in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 2. To deliver you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words, who forsakes the aluf in Hebrew, the companion, the close bosom relationship. In this case, it's her husband. Forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. 
The first step in this breakup is forsaking companionship. This couple has lost something. They've lost respect. They've lost love for one another. And the relationship has eroded. It is very vulnerable at this point. Folks, an affair begins at home. It begins first by losing something. And it is in that loss of companionship where there is that vacuum of companionship and communication that the other person would even entertain being with another companion. This companion has been forsaken first. Now, I read something that's sort of heartening and sort of lifts my spirits when I think of this. There's a Christian magazine, Men's Life, that did a survey, and they asked the male readers, what is the most important thing in your life? It was not sex. It was not career. It was not fame. It was not fortune. The most important thing to 63% of them was their wives. Isn't that great? 63% said the most important thing is my wife. And 90% of the readers said their best friend was their wife. Now, if that's true of you guys, the scenario that we're reading about in chapter 2 will never happen to you. But in chapter 2, this woman has forsaken, lost that companionship with her husband. Now she's looking for another companion somewhere else. The second thing we see that she did is she forgot the covenant with her God. That's verse 17. She's lost the fear of God. Here is a relationship, a friendship, that is very vulnerable because that companionship has been forsaken and the fear of God has been left. Let's turn to one other example, and that's in chapter 16. If you turn there for just a moment, this is now the case of close friends. Same Hebrew word, aluf, close companion, but it's the context of friendship outside of marriage, but close companions. In chapter 16, verse 28, it speaks about how wrong company can ruin a relationship, a friendship. Verse 28, a perverse man sows strife. A whisperer separates the best of friends. A violent man entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. Now look over to chapter 17, verse 9. He who covers a transgression seeks love, But he who repeats a matter separates friends. In both of these cases of chapter 16 and 17, it was a third party that got in the way and separated previously close friends. Somebody didn't have the discernment and brought into his or her circle a person who sowed strife, violence, backbiting, whispering, and it separated close friends. So in a marriage context, forsaking God, forsaking companionship in the relationship of a close friend, others can separate between friends. So friendship, it's a wonderful title to say, you are my friend. It has significant meaning, but it also has responsibility with it. And it has vulnerability. Friendships are delicate. And as we read in that poster It takes real maturity to get involved and not get all messed up. So rather than saying, forget being close, I don't want to get messed up. You are not meant to be alone. When God said it's not good that man should be alone, you were part of that picture. You're not the exception. We were meant for relationship. We were meant for closeness. And it's worth trying. It's worth trying. Let me put it to sort of a sobering example from the life of Adolf Hitler. 
In a book by Albert Speer called Inside the Third Reich, he paints a very interesting portrait of Hitler. He said, I suppose if Adolf Hitler ever had a friend, I would have been that friend. Hitler could fascinate. He wallowed in his own charisma, but he could not respond to friendship. Instinctively, he repelled it. The normal sympathies that normal men and women would enjoy were just not in him. At the core of the place where his heart should be, Hitler was a hollow man. He was empty. We who were close to him, or thought we were, all came to this sense, however slowly. You couldn't even enjoy eating cherries with him. We all were simply projections of his gigantic ego. Hitler fulfilled Proverbs 18.1, a man who isolates himself, does so to his own harm. In Hitler's case, it was not only to his own harm, but the harm of six million Jews, countless Americans, and other Europeans. As we close this morning, let me tell you the place to start. If you're one of those people who would say, man, I need a friend. Proverbs says there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I can't help but see Jesus as fitting that description perfectly. Remember Jesus. He's the Lord, the master of the universe. If anyone has the right to say, you are my slave, you are my servant, it's Jesus. Yet he told his disciples, I will not call you servants, but I'm going to call you my friends. He gave that wonderful title of friendship to those who are his servants. I don't call you servants, I call you my friend. Jesus is the greatest friend you'll ever have. Besides that, he's the greatest role model for friendship. All of the characteristics that we read about this morning, he embodied perfectly. Think about it. He invested his life in Judas Iscariot, a creep who betrayed him. Jesus knew he would betray him, and he didn't say, well, I'm not going to get close to him. He might rip me off. He was ripped off royally by Judas, but he still invested the time and the relationship in his life. So you will have a good friend in Jesus. You'll have a good role model for friendship. He will lift you to new heights. And if you haven't made Jesus Christ your Lord and your friend, it's time to do that today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clear teaching once again that is in your word about virtually everything in our life. You wrote the manual on successful relationships. You provided the role models, the good and the bad, the best found in Jesus Christ. And since Jesus was the one who called us to himself, saying, I will call you my friends, Lord, I pray that we would delight in intimacy with you and be satisfied with nothing less that we can converse to you as you did with Moses as friends would talk together. Lord, we pray for those who have come this morning who don't know Jesus as their best friend, the one who would die for their sins. Father, we pray that they would come to know him. In Jesus' name, amen.